Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And we're all familiar with the gender wage gap, the concept of it, the realities of it, especially since we just marked Equal Pay Day in mid-April. And well, Caroline, quick note, equal pay day for white women. Well, exactly. That's what I'm getting at. Connor. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. You and I are on the same page here. My intersectionality gets so over eager <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Don't I know it? Um, basically what Kristen is referring to, in case you're not a longtime Sminty listener, <laughs> uh, for every dollar earned by a white non-Hispanic dude in full-time work, the average white woman in America earns 78 cents. This is a refrain with which we are very familiar. And so equal payday then is the extra amount of time by which a woman would need to work to match a man's annual salary. So for white ladies with that 78 cents ratio, it rolls around in April. Correct. Exactly. But... The average Hispanic woman in this country, for every dollar a dude makes, she makes only 56 cents. So her equal payday is in October. Yeah. So just as the as the leaves are changing. Yeah. And and a man, a white dude, an average white dude has made almost an entire new year's worth of salary, money, cash, uh, the Hispanic woman is is just starting to catch up. Yeah, and I believe for black women, the gap is uh, 68 cents for every dollar a white dude makes. So they're more late summer? Yeah, they're July. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, you go to the swimming pool, you know, you're, you're rocking your shorts and your Hawaiian shirts around the luau in the summer, and, and you finally catch up. With with your wage gap. Uh, for, also, I want to go to whatever swimming pool you're at. It's having these luau's. Um, well, you're invited. I mean, it's it's just the the wage gap luau. You know, I mean, we're we're trying to work on a on a better catchier name. <laughs> yeah, the wage gap luau. Yeah, well, because I'm hoping to find something with a little more alliteration. So the the wage gap. Grill out. Grill out? I don't know. We'll, we'll work on it. You guys are welcome to send us suggestions. (laughs) Um, but the interesting thing about the wage gap and equal pay, salaries, negotiation, the interesting thing is that when you break it down by sexual orientation, things actually shake out a little differently in that study after study has shown that lesbians earn more than their straight sisters. And I mean, people are like, good for you, lesbians. And and it is good for them. We can stand to learn so much. Everything from, you know, possibly bucking gender norms and egalitarian divisions of chores. Well, exactly. Uh, they have more orgasms statistically than straight women. They're better at planning weddings in a, in a saner kind of way. Who knows? But yes, there, there are, there's an array of things that I think, uh, the straights could learn from our lesbian friends. But of course, there are some downsides to the financial issues facing a lot of people in the LGBT community. But first, let's jump into what the heck is going on with this so-called lesbian wage premium. Well, there's no so-called about it. Uh, a January 2015 meta-analysis by Marika Klawater at the University of Washington found a 9% 
lesbian wage premium. Or put another way, she found that lesbians earn 9% more on average than straight women. And even when you control for demographics, uh, the wage premium is still around 6%. Yeah, and those demographics being that self-described lesbians tend to be better educated on average, more likely to be white, live in urban centers, have fewer kids, and are more likely to be in professional positions. And there was also a Canadian study that looked only at white lesbians, BTW. And there was something about the idea of factoring in race would factor in too many variables in terms of socioeconomics. So they compared uh, white lesbians and white straight ladies in a July 2015 study in the journal Gender and Society and found that that wage premium is even stronger in those higher paying professional jobs. But that does not mean that lesbians have entirely escaped this wage gap that we talk about. No. So multiple studies have actually established an even more detailed pay hierarchy than what we might think of with just the gender wage gap of he makes this, she makes that. Um, because as we've already acknowledged, things shift when we look at women of color. But if we look at sexual orientation, the income hierarchy goes straight men, gay men, lesbians, and then straight women. Yeah, very interesting. And the, the, one of the factors that cements and complicates the whole gender hierarchy thing is that trans women actually see a drop in wages by nearly a third when they transition compared with their trans men peers who actually see a slight bump in wages. Well, and that makes sense too, because that's in line with the gender wage gap. And isn't necessarily correlated to the sexual orientation wage gap. Correct. Exactly. And so why? What is going on? And as I was reading, you know, people people are definitely reaching for answers. They're trying to figure out the secret because, I mean, I think most of us or at least the people listening to this podcast would love to see the gender wage gap close um, and the sexual orientation wage gap. We want to see the wage gaps close. We want to earn the money that we deserve. And so as I was reading all this stuff, I was trying to figure out, like, yeah, you know, like Kristen mentioned, there is the egalitarian uh, household chore thing, which we'll get into here in a minute. But I was wondering, too, if it doesn't circle back to already having experience and or a level of comfort with bucking those gender norms where women are supposed to be polite and you're supposed to be a good girl and don't negotiate and don't push too hard and just take what you're given and be grateful for it. And that. Perhaps that gives them a leg up when it comes to negotiating. Well, and I would wonder, too, that if that is the case, whether it plays more of a role in the how the a lesbian is going to negotiate for herself versus how an employer is going to perceive her gender role wise, because maybe uh, with that bucking of gender norms, the employer is less likely to negatively judge her if she pushes for more money aggressively in a way that we would consider unfeminine. Well, yeah, and that gets to the one of the possible answers, which is the issue of positive discrimination. Those Canadian researchers that we cited earlier said that lesbian employees could be, quote, perceived as less feminine and closer to the unencumbered male ideal. 
In other words, employers might be expecting lesbians to be more competitive in their jobs. Uh, they might be more committed to their work than straight women. You know those straight women who just immediately want to run off and pop out babies and never come back from maternity leave. I mean, I can't wait to do that as soon as I leave this podcast studio. <laughs> I know. Kristen's on a timetable here. And and that whole thing, that concept is called mommy tracking. It's when you pass over a woman for top projects and promotions because of this assumption, this this like almost subconscious assumption that mothers will be less productive. And it's worth noting, by the way, that there's no equivalent daddy track. And actually, women tend to be dinged for becoming mothers, whereas fathers in the workplace tend to get almost like higher status. They're trusted more when they become both married and fathers. So anyway. And can I just say, Caroline, that the combination of those two phrases, unencumbered male ideal and mommy track just made me sprout like 10 new gray hairs. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But like, I mean, here we we're exploring subconscious in a lot of cases biases. What what could potentially be benefiting lesbians and hurting straight women? Um, and in reality, you know, moms with full time jobs do take off more time to tend to family. But that's for so many complicated, myriad, multifaceted reasons, including things like male partners not pulling their weight, expectations that ah, mom will take care of the kids. She'll go leave work and pick them up when they're sick. And according to a Harvard study, men prioritizing their careers over their wives while women tend to prioritize their careers equally. I think I just felt like two more gray hairs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's this that positive discrimination, those assumptions around mommies versus lesbians, as if lesbians would never have or adopt children, that is one of the factors. You also have the factor of education and job choice. Uh, researchers have found that gay men and women are nearly two times likelier to hold a bachelor's degree, which, you know, often opens the door to better paying positions, particularly, you know, white collar or professional positions that offer room for advancement. And this is something that you see come up a lot uh, when people argue that, oh, the, the gender wage gap doesn't exist at all because it's just the jobs that you're choosing. Um, and it is true if we look at the sexual orientation gap that gay men and lesbians are proportionally overrepresented among the highest paying jobs, including psychology and law. They're also overrepresented in university teaching and social work, although, of course, as you might guess, social work and university teaching are not among the highest paying jobs. Um, and this has also led researchers to investigate whether there's this factor of lesbians picking jobs that are atypical for women, for cis straight women. Um, and this was something that was looked at in a study published in 2013 in the journal Social Forces. And it did, in fact, find that lesbians are less likely to work in the retail industry, for instance. Yeah. And so there is this question of are gay men and lesbians concentrated in certain jobs? Uh, there was a 2015 study in Administrative Science Quarterly that found that gay men and lesbians gravitate 
toward professions with high task independence, in other words, less reliance on coworkers or managers. So like a fire safety inspector or a massage therapist, those were two examples they gave. Uh, and in addition to high task independence, they also gravitate toward jobs with high social perceptiveness. In other words, requiring the ability to accurately read or predict others' emotions. So what is going on with that? The researchers point out that task independence makes it easier to hide sexual orientation if you don't feel comfortable coming out. Um, and knowing how to read social cues for a lot of people might be an important acquired skill when you're surrounded by bigots your entire life. Oh, what an upshot to such a downside. And when the researchers looked at traditionally blue-collar versus pink-collar jobs. They found that when lesbians end up in more blue-collar jobs, they're often well-paying professions like being diesel mechanics, uh, doing elevator and heating repair, whereas if they are in more pink-collar jobs, they tend to end up in more academic and social-focused jobs like psychologists, sociologists, um, or being training and development specialists. Yeah, and... Another interesting factor that underlies this whole conversation, researchers predict that as society becomes more accepting of people in the LGBTQ community, these associations and divisions could very well fade because they argue if you are more accepted and less afraid of coming out, then there wouldn't be as much of a drive to go to those task independent positions. And if you're not as worried about being attacked by bigots around you, physically or verbally, then you don't need to have that heightened awareness necessarily of other people's emotions and feelings. And that seems analogous to efforts to close the gender gap with STEM fields, where it's like we need to, uh, you know, eliminate all of these gender based barriers so that hopefully in the future, more girls will naturally be drawn to, I don't want to say naturally, but will um, be drawn to and be able to retain jobs in those fields. Yeah. And you also have uh, this terrific website called Gay Money that's created by journalist Joe Clark. And Clark looked at 20 years of studies and found that lesbians tend to also work longer hours because generally speaking, generally, they are less likely to have kids. So they can put in the longer hours, potentially earn that overtime on the job. And he points out that you have to keep in mind that these studies that we're talking about are dealing mostly with lesbian couples, not single lesbians, because they are easier to identify in surveys. They're more likely to uh, either be out or or um, publicly self-identify in surveys as lesbians. And so Clark calls for more research on both single gay women and single or coupled bisexual women. And of course, at this point, we want to note that bisexual women are largely erased or just hidden in a lot of these statistics. So what I'm hearing is that the, the lesbian power couple trope is real. <laughs> so real. Um, because when you toss a man into the equation, having ever lived with a man, having ever coupled up with a man, automatically your average salary goes down. And this was something reported on in The Economist. So 
women who've never lived with a male partner before make more money than those who have, regardless of sexual orientation. And this might be a result of striving for a higher paycheck to compensate for making less than men overall. Um, and you also have same-sex couples being likelier to be dual earners even when they have kids, which circles back around to that whole egalitarian household thing. Yeah, and so... Uh, studies in 2000 and 2009 found that lesbians who've lived with a man experience a wage penalty of 9.5%. They make 9.5% less than lesbians who had never lived with a male partner. And so remember that 6% wage premium we mentioned above that lesbians have a, a wage premium of 6% when you control for demographics, blah, 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 blah. Um, well, for these women, it drops to 5.2% for never married to a man lesbians, which is still a good chunk above women in opposite sex marriages. Which is making me real nervous about the fact that my fiance and I are living together. It's like, do we, do we need to have separate homes so my income will rise? Well, I mean, what researchers point out is that it Maybe and, you know, maybe like maybe this is a subconscious thing that if you grow up and and trust me, like I'm fully aware of the quibbles that will arise when I say this, like I agree, I understand. Uh, but the researchers point out that maybe if you grow up never having an intention to lean out buzzword and you're like, I know I'm a lesbian. I don't want to live with a man. I don't want to marry a man. So therefore, I will never have a man bringing home the bacon. Uh, so I know I have to commit myself to getting a good education. I've got to invest time, money in education and climbing that career ladder because no one's going to help me. Um, although, of course, you could argue, hello, there are women, gay, straight, bisexual, whatever, who also never plan to marry or have children. But that is one factor that perhaps when you know that you won't have a partner or you assume you won't have a partner who's bringing home more than you and who can support you if you decide to stay home, that you will feel compelled to, I guess, work harder and longer to make up for that. Well, and I wonder in terms of the growing up factor, if it's, Maybe not so much like a 10-year-old girl being like, I'm never going to have a man in my house. i to start saving my cash. Um, or if, and this again is would be something I would predict would change over time and would have already improved um, where we are today. But for that 10-year-old girl, say, 20 years ago, knowing that she's a lesbian and being like, I'm going to have to work really hard and overachieve to compensate for the discrimination that I'm very going to likely face. Yes. And I would argue that that's probably more likely, especially if you're talking about a 10 year old. (laughs) Um, We need to get a 10 year old in here. (laughs) Yeah. Where's our things up? Where's our child consultant? And, you know, like we said, a lot of this, a lot of this gap, this premium might relate back to the fact uh, that gay couples tend to have more egalitarian households And we're going to get into that when we get right back from a quick break. Listen, you need to know how to cook. Not only do you end up feeling like you know your way around a kitchen, but cooking at home means eating healthier and saving money instead of ordering all that expensive, greasy takeout. Blue Apron has you covered. 
For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create home-cooked meals. Just follow the easy step-by-step instructions that come complete with pictures. Plus, each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. No overwhelming trips to the grocery store and no more sad takeout. And no matter your dietary preferences, Blue Apron makes it a breeze to discover and prepare dishes like codfish and chips with aioli, or if you prefer vegetarian fare, how about a kale Caesar with soft-boiled eggs, quinoa, and crispy kale? Yes, please. And right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash momstuff. That's blueapron.com slash momstuff. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, so we have talked on the podcast before about egalitarian divisions of household labor when it comes to straight couples versus gay couples, and that even if you are the most feminist man-woman couple in the world, uh, instead of saying opposite sex, I think it's funnier to say man-woman, man-woman couple in the world, statistically speaking, according to research, you will likely still see your household labor divided along gendered lines. And that means both, you know, dude is going to be mowing the lawn and fixing the car. Lady friend is going to be doing the dishes and the laundry. And in addition to lady friend doing the dishes and laundry, she's going to be doing more of it and spending more time statistically on housework than her man friend will. But when you look at gay couples, as we talked about in that long ago now egalitarian household episode, gay couples don't grapple with the same gender divisions, obviously, because when you're two women living together in a romantic partnership like, there's no script. There's no schema telling you, like, you're the one who mows the lawn and you're the one who does the dishes or you're the one who picks the kids up when they're sick and you're the one who takes care of the finances. There are fewer gendered expectations along those lines. So if we go into one of those man-woman homes, <laughs> and yes, man-woman is, is all one word, uh, <laughs> worldwide, women spend four and a half hours a day on unpaid work, such as cooking and cleaning. Whereas men spend about half that time doing the unpaid work. But even in the U.S., where women constitute 40 percent of breadwinners, and this reminds me that we need to do an episode stat on women breadwinners Mm. because we are winning more bread Bread. than ever before. Bread and bacon. (laughs) It's like Oprah says, I love bread. (laughs) Even in Oprah's bread-loving homes, where women are bringing it home and eating it too, (laughs) women still spend more time on housework compared to men. But this isn't just a thing of, man, those guys sure are jerks. They're letting us do all the work around here. Um, there's also this concept of comparative advantage that may have laid some groundwork when men were the ones who were working outside the home for the most part um, that has fostered this pattern. So this is something that Marina Adshad explains over at The Big Think. And basically, comparative advantage means that people benefit from a task trade-off if each specializes in a task at which they're most efficient. And so I'll use the example we've used many times on this podcast, which is my dishwasher I knew it. efficiency. I knew it. So in my man-woman household, <laughs> uh, I... 
do the dishes because I'm better at loading up that dishwasher. Yeah. I know it. I'm proud of it. Uh, whereas my fiance is, I mean, it's, it's also his, his day job, but he does things. He, he is the fixer. Yeah. Of electrical things. Yeah. And so there's that trade off. Yeah. He's expected to, to do that. And it's okay because you're expected to do this other thing. And it's so gender normy, but it's also, our comparative advantage. Yeah. I would electrocute myself if yeah. I tried to be the fixer <laughs> and our dishwasher would be a wreck <laughs> if he took over. P.S. He does wash dishes. We trade off. He would be so frustrated if he heard me saying this right now because we're actually pretty 50-50. Oh, fiance. Yes. Um, yeah. And so basically when you take this concept and look historically, men have historically been paid more to work outside the home, which gives women the comparative advantage in doing the household chores and taking care of the kiddos and all that stuff. And so Adshad wrote, if a woman believes that she will eventually be married to a man who earns a higher income than she does, then she has less to gain from investing in human capital that will give her an advantage in the labor market. That's what we were referring to earlier. So... When you look at lesbians, women who have no intention of marrying a man and indeed plan to spend life with another woman who might make more, less or the same amount, they have none of those incentives to underinvest in their skills and education. And so this creates a situation in which these women increase that X factor. So whether it's education or skills or whatever, that gives them a competitive advantage in the market. And like we said, obviously not everyone falls along these lines. We're painting with a broad brush. We're talking about gender norms. So obviously there's going to be people who fall outside of those norms. And isn't, uh, speaking of increasing the X factor, isn't the X factor also like a competitive singing show? Yes. So when lesbians invest in uh, voice lessons... They increase the X factor? That's what we're trying to say. All right. Yeah. Surprise listeners. <laughs> this episode is actually a sneak attack <laughs> promo for the X factor. It's a twist. Um, but there is actually a twist here. Yeah. Okay. Because we've been talking as if gay men and women are just walking around making it rain. They've got money for days and days, but gay affluence is kind of a total myth. Yeah. And <laughs> it's a myth and it's been around for a long time. And Scalia, Justice Scalia, rest in peace. Uh, he didn't invent it, but he certainly perpetuated it when in one court dissent, he said, those who engage in homosexual conduct tend to reside in disproportionate numbers in certain communities. Even more ominously, though, to Scalia, these homosexuals have, quote, high disposable income, which gives them, quote, disproportionate political power to achieve not merely a grudging social toleration, but full social acceptance of homosexuality. Oh, my gosh. Is the gay agenda acceptance? I was about to say. Yeah, Crazy. it's like they so. B- but, uh, Scalia, I know Scalia was a very smart guy, you know, conservatism notwithstanding. Um, but it seems so illogical to believe that gay men in particular would somehow be wealthy enough to like fund a gay, a quote unquote gay agenda because if that were the case, like, wouldn't same-sex marriage have passed, like, forever ago? Anyway, um, not to speak ill of the dead. 
<laughs> but <laughs> yeah, moving on. Uh, so where did this myth come from? What, what is behind it? And like so many things in America and in the West, like, Marketing and advertising in corporate America is is sort of behind this. Corporate America actually sought to improve policies around LGBT people because they wanted to create a viable consumer market. And they had marketing firms conduct surveys to try to show not just affluence, but disproportionate levels of brand loyalty as being a hallmark of people in the LGBT community, but particularly gay men. This is where we start to see those stereotypes of like, oh, my God, gay men just want to buy all the shoes and suits. And I'm not saying that people of whatever stripe don't want to buy all the shoes and suits. I love shoes. And I love a suit. <laughs> Perfect. Together, we are like one character in nine to five. Um, but the thing is, these weren't exactly scientific studies. And it left out people in poverty who wouldn't be worth marketing to for these corporations. And poverty is a huge problem for the LGBT community and for lesbians in particular. And that's something that is just ignored when we tend to just view gay men and and lesbians as these like affluent carefree childless like suit wearing shoe loving people yeah i mean think about pop culture you have the l word where from what i can remember um most of the lesbian characters were very upwardly mobile you have the first you know real portrayals of gay men on television in a big way with will and grace Mm -hmm. will had plenty of money in that huge apartment and also queer eye for the straight guy yeah what was that episode of sex in the city where charlotte starts hanging around with a bunch of lesbians and they're yeah the power lesbians all of the power lesbians in their suits and button-ups and glasses and they finally kick her out because they're like dude you're not a you're not a lesbian they didn't say that i remember exactly what they said but yeah i I don't know if i can say it well and then when samantha briefly dates a lesbian and she's a wealthy artist. Yeah, there's yeah, there is an investment uh, pop culturally and marketing wise in maintaining this, you know, stereotype that yeah, across the board, LGBT people are just rich and living it up. And I wonder if that made it easier to turn a blind eye to all the discrimination they face. It's like, yeah. you know what? They're fine because they can just pay for a great lifestyle anyway. Yeah. When in fact, Data from UCLA's Williams Institute finds that 7.6% of lesbian couples compared to 5.7% of married opposite-sex couples live in poverty. Furthermore, 14.1% of lesbian couples receive food stamps compared to 6.5% of opposite-sex married couples. Yeah, and a few further stats. Just over 2% of women in same-sex relationships receive government cash assistance compared to just 0.8% of women in opposite-sex couples. And, I mean, this is this is bad enough when you're looking at rates of poverty among lesbian couples. But let's add some more factors because it honestly only gets worse. When you add age to the mix, women in same-sex couples who are 65 and older have nearly twice the poverty rate of women in opposite-sex couples of the same age. And, of course, when you add race to the equation that makes a difference, too. So queer women of color, trans women and trans women of color are especially vulnerable to poverty. You have African-American and Latina women in same-sex couples being twice to three times 
likelier to be poor compared to white women and same-sex couples. And then if we add the layer of education, one-third of lesbian couples without high school diplomas live in poverty compared to just over 18% of different sex married couples. And of course, it changes when you change location as well. Yeah. So lesbian couples who live in rural areas are much more likely to be poor, 14 percent, compared to just four and a half percent of coupled lesbians living in large cities. And again, like geography, rural areas, like that's code for so much more, right? Because living in a rural area, you might not have access to the same levels of education, health care and jobs that women in urban centers would. You also might face higher levels of discrimination if, in fact, those rural areas are more homogenous and don't have the same exposure to people of different backgrounds. Well, and one of the big factors explaining a wage gap premium for lesbians and lesbian couples is the idea that, oh, well, you know what? They won't be, quote unquote, mommy tracked. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Let's let's pay them a little more money. But when you do add children to the mix, which is highly common for female same sex couples, you have more poverty as well compared to uh, people with kids who are in those opposite sex relationships. Yeah, so just over 19% of kids who live with female same-sex couples are in poverty, compared to just over 12% of children who live with married opposite-sex couples. And in general, married or partnered LGBT people living in two adult households with kids are twice as likely as comparable non-LGBT individuals to report household incomes near the poverty threshold. And I'm wondering if that's also an issue of, like I was saying, the job market and geography, because when you look at the states with the highest proportions of same-sex couples raising kids, whether that's biological, adopted, or stepkids, those include Mississippi, Wyoming, Alaska, Idaho, and Montana. So, I mean, Mississippi, like having major issues these days with education, a healthcare crisis, they just passed a quote unquote religious liberty law. So, I mean, there, there are so many factors that go into, that go into the poverty, the level of poverty that affects the LGBT community. And this isn't just an issue of money, but how, also how money relates to our well-being. So there is a piece over in the Atlantic in 2014 um, that highlighted a Gallup poll, which found um, a well-being gap essentially between queer women and straight women. So uh, queer women scored slightly lower on an index of well-being um, than straight women. And researchers think that those financial woes play a large part because, for instance, Queer men and women are 10 percentage points less likely to consider themselves financially thriving compared to straight people. And there was a piece in The Atlantic in 2014 which highlighted 
a Gallup poll, which found also a, a, a gap, a sexual orientation gap in well-being, um, which is sort of a, a complicated way of saying that queer women reported lower levels of overall well-being compared to straight women. It wasn't a massive gap. Uh, the queer women's index score was 57 compared to straight women's score of 63, but a gap nonetheless. And those financial issues that we were just talking about with all of those percentages certainly play a point because if you also compare queer women and straight women and ask uh, both groups whether they feel what financially stable and even thriving, you have straight women likelier to say, yes, ma'am, I am. And that could be linked to issues that queer women would uniquely face in the workplace, like employment discrimination and inequitable health care coverage, families turning them away and outright homelessness. And when you look more closely at that whole idea of thriving financially and you break it down according to that sexual orientation hierarchy that we mentioned at the top of the podcast, it is interesting to note that queer women report a slightly higher average when it comes to saying, yes, I am thriving financially than queer men. And why? Why would that be? Because according to our hierarchy, queer men still earn more than queer women in general. But I think it breaks down in a way that makes sense because gay men and bisexual men still make less than their straight counterparts. So they're still being dinged. So if you're separating it by gender that way, they are being dinged. But when you look at queer women, lesbians and bisexual women, they're earning more than their straight lady counterparts. And so even though queer women are making less than queer men on average, they are making more than their, as I said, lady counterparts who are straight. But they also experience mm, far more poverty, too. So, I mean, it Mm -hmm. seems like there has to be like this upper tier of high earning, high income lesbians who are skewing that average a little bit. I would think so. I mean, I, I don't have the stats in front of me. I mean, if I if I know anything about math, which is <laughs> enough, <laughs> listeners, it's quite enough. Um, I would think that would have to be the case, because when we then start looking at more of the I don't know, the more of the median, I would be curious to see what the median income would be. Yeah, because I would guess that the median income for uh, same sex female household, which is such a clinical way to put it, um, a lesbian-headed household, would be closer to poverty level than the 1% level. Yes. Yeah. I think on average you would be right. Um, and when we look at this well-being scale uh, from the Gallup poll, poor physical well-being also plays a massive part, as you might imagine. Only 24% of queer women reported that they were physically thriving compared with 36% of straight women. Uh, lesbian and bisexual women reported higher levels of both smoking and drinking. And bisexual women in particular reported elevated weight and psychological distress. And of course, you also factor in the incredibly low feelings of safety, security and community involvement uh, that lesbian and bisexual women reported in the survey. Nine percent less than straight women, for instance, and lesbian and bisexual women also reported having a lower sense of purpose in life than the straight women in the survey did. And as I was listening to you saying all of these 
these statistics, which paint such a kind of a dismal picture, the first thought in my head was, oh, this has to be a little bit dated. I forgot that we were talking about 2014, which only goes to show that while, yes, it has gotten better in many ways, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, especially if we look at the concentrations of those uh, lesbian households with kids and right. where those are in places like Mississippi, whose religious liberty, in quotes, bill is kind of the one of the broadest um, anti-LGBT pieces of legislation yeah, to yeah. ever pass. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And. It, it, I mean, you talked about the whole mommy tracking thing. The Williams Institute points out that it's not like lesbians aren't striving to be parents. An estimated 37 percent of LGBT identified adults, so not just women, have had a child at some point in their lives. And the study revealed that, again, it's more likely to be black lesbians living in states like Mississippi. Those are the lesbians who are more likely to be parents. So again, multifaceted issues around socioeconomics, race, education, well-being, all of these things tie together. And so while we see this, we see these headlines about the, the lesbian wage premium and we think, oh, fabulous. How do we get there too? It's more like, how can we all lift each other up and support each other so that we aren't talking about wage premiums and poverty? We're just talking about Everyone making and earning what they deserve. Well, and in the Internet news cycle that we all kind of swim in day to day, the headline of a lesbian wage premium is probably far clickier and more viral than lesbians are living in poverty. Who wants to click on this and learn more? No. Okay. Well, let's let's just talk about this one. This well, one big average. That's how we got everybody to listen to the podcast. It's true. It's true. <laughs> we sucked you in. I know. Um, and of course, we want to hear from our lesbian and queer listeners about this issue, and not just you know talking to cisgender women either. I mean, clearly, w- the farther you get from being a white straight cisgender dude the more complicated your salary situation can become. But like you said earlier, Caroline, it's going to be interesting, hopefully in a really good way, to see how in the future, as hopefully our society becomes more accepting, how the concentrations of LGBT employees might spread away from those uh, kind of pockets that they're in right now, and also hopefully that hierarchy, that income hierarchy, evening out. Yeah. And hopefully more religious liberty bills being struck down or not succeeding. Yeah. There's that whole thing, too. So lots to write us about, listeners. We want to know your thoughts on this. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I've got a letter here from Gia in response to our colorism episode. Uh, Gia says that she is from Papua in Indonesia, but is currently studying in the Netherlands. So Gia says, thanks for the podcast on colorism. It gives me a word for a conversation I had with my sister a few months ago. We were talking about an Instagram account, at Beautiful Papuan. It's an Instagram account that promotes a beauty idea that is Papuan by taking pictures of Papuans who are gorgeous. My sister was critical of it because this stress on beauty instead of brain is shallow. My main criticism is because people featured in it are mostly Papuans of mixed descent. 
I suppose I should have begun by saying that Papuans have a darker complexion. We are more similar with people from the Oceania region and have curly hair akin to African Americans in the United States. However, the beauty ideal in Indonesia is parallel to the one in the Philippines. We are inundated by skin-lightening products, and you don't see Papuans in movies or anything which may promote a different idea of beauty. I welcome the Instagram account because I thought it could be an outlet or an alternative for all the other beauty ideas we are constantly receiving from the media that exclude us. Let's skip the part that most people featured are athletic, slender, extremely fashionable, and so on. That is a different can of worms. My main criticism was based in the fact that most of the people featured are mostly people from mixed descent, someone with one parent from Papua and the other from a different island. This means that their hair is mostly wavy instead of curly and that their skin is lighter. Their skins are not fair, but they are as close to fairness as a dark-skinned Papuan can be, and I thought this was a problem for an account that wants to promote an alternative ideal of beauty, but does so by revealing the colorism we have. I myself am of mixed descent and am old enough not to care, but given the target of this account, I wish they were more inclusive in their promotion of a beauty ideal. Or am I expecting too much from an account that's shallow? In the meantime, thanks for your work. I immensely enjoy listening to you talking about women's issues. Your podcast always brighten my day, so keep up the work. And good luck with your impending wedding, Kristen. Ah. <laughs> so thanks, Gia. I think I just felt a few more gray hairs sprout. <laughs> Thank you, though. Um, I've got a letter here from Sarah about our episode on the politics of tanning. And she writes, in college, I was part of a ballroom dance company. For our annual performance, there is an expectation that we tan. We were told that in the large auditorium under many stage lights, we would either glow or become translucent. I believe company members with darker skin weren't expected to tan, though others would flock to get spray tans and share tips on the best lotions. So around the same time, I started noticing other conversations among students related to the tanning requirement. Tanning is actually common or even mandatory throughout the ballroom dance world, not just for performances, but for competitions, which often take place in gyms or other traditionally lit venues. Clearly, tanning here was not related to the effects of strong stage lights. I learned that this tanning tradition in ballroom, especially for Latin ballroom styles, stems from a desire to, quote, look more Latin. In effect, people have used tanning as a means of brown face in order to blend into the desired aesthetic of the style. Of course, this is super problematic. And at my small liberal arts college, this was not about to fly once people learned the root of tanning in ballroom. Before the performance the next year, a group of students managed to shed light on this issue enough to make tanning for the performance optional, both for those with concerns of the racist implications and for those like me who have sensitive skin. While I'm proud that we were able to make a small change to our company's tanning requirement, it's still a major part of the competitive ballroom world. I wonder if there are other areas of performance with practices of a similar nature and hope that the Latin ballroom world will be able to continue loving the sport and art without the racist practice that seems so ingrained. So thank you so much, Sarah. I had no idea about that. Caroline is shaking her head as well. So as always, we learn so much from you listeners. So keep on sending us your letters. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our sources, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about the lesbian wage premium and poverty, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 